Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shibu Glani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm really happy to be joined by Josh Gollum and Jeannie Chen. Josh is the CEO of Hazel Health, and Jeannie is the head of clinical operations and people. Hazel Health seeks to improve the health and well-being of children by expanding school health services through telehealth. And I first met Josh uh, over a year ago at the Rock Health Summit in San Francisco, back when we could still meet in person. Uh, unfortunately, this year it went virtual. I was really impressed with Hazel Health back then. Uh, and then just a few months ago, they announced a $33 million round of funding to basically scale out their impressive telehealth platform for school districts. I think right now you cover at least uh, one and a half million lives, I, I believe, from that press release. So I'm excited to hear more. So Josh, uh, Jeannie, thanks for taking the time to uh, be with us on Raise Line podcast. Thanks for having us. So I'd like to start by getting a few career highlights. Um, so maybe we can start with you, uh, Jeannie. How did you get uh, involved in Hazel Health? Yeah, so my background is in healthcare. I worked at uh, larger organizations like DaVita and then smaller organizations like a behavioral health company that I worked at right before joining Hazel. And so we did just amazing work, a lot of trauma-informed care, um, really working with acute cases where mainly parents didn't feel like they can keep their children safe anymore. So they would come, uh, basically live in our programs, get residential facilities, live there basically 24 hours and get therapy 24 hours. Um, and it was incredible work, a lot of healing. But I always struggled with not everyone had access to amazing programs like the ones that we had. So when I learned about Hazel and our mission really to provide healthcare for, for all students, that was really the compelling moment, really thinking about intervention, about how, how you could help a student uh, in their path uh, early on and really feeling like the trajectory of many of the students that we worked with would have just been dramatically different. And so that's why I'm here. That's great. Uh, I actually didn't know about the DeVita connection, but uh, when I was in business school, uh, we actually had the CEO of DeVita, Kent Theory, come by. And I know they have oh, great. a very strong culture at DeVita, which I'm sure you guys have, uh, have at Hazel as well. So J Josh, how did you go about, uh, can you give us some of your career highlights as well as, um, as, well as I know you're CEO of Hazel, but what does that mean on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, we're still trying to figure that out some days. So, it's a, so, you know, I have this sort of interesting career. So right out of undergrad, I actually went in the nonprofit sector. So my very first job as an adult was actually working in schools. So that was during the Clinton administration. He started this thing called AmeriCorps, which was the Urban Peace Corps. And so I was really excited about it. There was this program working in inner city schools, Drive, Drive, Change. And so I uh, jumped into that and uh, learned all about education, all of the challenges of it. And it was, it was such a great foundational experience for my wide-eyed 21-year-old self. Uh, and a lot of that really shaped a lot of my kind of views around things like social equity and access. Um, and then I changed gears. I ended up going to business school uh, and then working in healthcare for the gosh, last, last 15 years or so. And so this is I've had the great fortune of being able to lead three different healthcare companies um, but all of them have been sort of around this idea of finding parts of the healthcare system where access is really difficult. Uh, and as a result, people both have worse outcomes for those patients, but then also it costs the healthcare system a lot more money. I mean, I think as you probably know, should we spend 18, 19% of our GDP on healthcare in the United States? But despite that, we have pretty mediocre outcomes. And there's a bunch of reasons for that. But I think one of my strongest beliefs is because there's not enough of an investment in 
preventative care, primary care. Uh, and so the, the business right before Hazel was leading was a company called Paladina Health. We were doing mainly focused on adults, but trying to find new ways to get them access through their workplace. So we would go and actually build clinics where adults worked so that they would be more likely to take advantage of preventative care. Um, and, and they're doing great. That business has been hugely successful and they're both on, particularly on the clinical side, I think it, it's validated this concept that if you deliver a great experience and you have people get access, know they can see a doctor that they take advantage of it and connect through them. And so um, I had always wanted to get back to doing something with kids, uh, think about pediatrics, especially after my own three kids. And so the idea of, you know, for me, the equivalent of, of Paladina, which is going where adults work for kids was going to where they are in school. But it was such a natural place to go, particularly for kids that are um, have access issues that may be on Medicaid or CHIP, uh, may not have easy access to transportation or how to use the healthcare system, but the school's such a great place in the community to go to think about transforming care for kids. Yeah, no, it's an incredible, incredible uh, offering. I, I remember from the press release I had read about the fundraising, about three quarters of your families get health insurance through Medicaid or CHIP, uh, and over 40% of Hazel's families so they don't have a primary care physician. So I'd love to hear um, kind of the founding story of Hazel and, um, and obviously pre-COVID, uh, kind of what you were working on, and then we'll get into COVID and how that's uh, probably accelerated a lot of the, the things you've been working on. So who, any, either one of you can go first and like how Hazel was founded and what the, what the major milestones were over the past few years. Yeah, maybe, maybe Jeannie, I'll do a little founding, but I'd love for you to talk about the COVID story. It's far more interesting when Jeannie talks than when I talk. So the thing that was fun about our family story is that there's folks with backgrounds like Jeannie and I have a healthcare background. Uh, we have this incredibly talented team of ex-entrepreneurs who had started a bunch of companies between them have been very successful. And after they sold their last company to Apple, wanted to do something that was more mission-based and then also former educators. And one in particular, I'd been a principal and a director and, and really done a lot of innovative work around equity in general. And, and so all coalesced around this idea of if you wanted to really improve outcomes for kids, how would you go about it? And, and what was interesting is to so like ignore the healthcare side for a moment. There've been all this during the Obama administration, uh, there'd been um, a lot of focus on this, this subject around chronic absenteeism as a specific metric in particular. And what that means is usually in most states they calculate it is what percentage of the kids in that state missed more than 10% of the school year. So like at least one day every two weeks. Um, and the, the number of kids across the country, that are, it's astonishingly high. It's that one in every eight kids is missing that much school. And if you look at almost any metric you care about for kids, whether it's academic performance, graduation rates, even things like incarceration rates, are highly correlated with this metric around chronic absenteeism. And part of the Obama administration, there's a thing called the Every Student Succeeds Act, which actually made this as a metric that about 40 of the 50 states made it one of their metrics they're going to evaluate schools on. So there's already all this sort of focus on, well, why are kids missing school? And there's a lot of reasons why, but the number one reason in the data shows is around access to health, like kids are sick and um, it's around access to health. And, and particularly, you know, we were, doing a lot of our diligence, that you'd find all families struggle with getting kids access to healthcare, but particularly lower income families that may have Medicaid, where only about half of doctors in the country accept Medicaid. The wait time to get an appointment can be twice as long if you have Medicaid versus commercial insurance. 
And so what our, you know, a lot of the data showed us is that because of that, you have families and kids that miss far more school than they would, they should, um, if they had regular access to healthcare. And so, you know, we all came together to say, well, gosh, could we go into the school setting? And, and I will say, like, for me, the fun part, because I've, I've never really, I've always had great um, people in innovation, but having that technology side to really think about new ways to operate is huge, but also that education lens that, like, we, we learned very early on that, that it's not just about bringing great care in, but it's how do you, how do you really figure out how to work with schools? The schools are already doing so many things for kids. I'm continually amazed with how many things they're juggling, particularly now in COVID, to try to support students. And so this whole focus on how do we fit into their existing workflow and mission has become really key to us. So that's kind of the background. And Jeannie, I'd love for you to give the, the updates. And so Shiv, you were asking pre-COVID, correct? And so we can get into COVID. So I mean, yeah, pre-COVID, you can tell us, Jeannie, what your take is on the milestones. And then, and then yeah, maybe you, then you can follow right into, into COVID and how you've adjusted your operations as a result. Yeah, absolutely. So I would say pre-COVID, um, a lot of what we were doing really hinged on trust, building trust with the community, really understanding what is the needs of that particular community that we're working in, as well as the schools themselves. And so as Josh alluded to, we really started partnering with the school nurses who do so much. They really are the superheroes. Um, and so uh, even post-COVID, it's even more that we're looking to school nurses to, to really be the leaders in healthcare of what is happening in the school. And so a lot of what we were doing initially was really getting a better understanding of HIPAA, as I'm sure you guys all know, but there's also FERPA in schools. And so what does that actually mean as we're interacting with students in a school setting? How do we really partner with school nurses? And then that was really just a building block for us to understand the communities. And um, a lot of the families that we're working with, you know, you had mentioned earlier, it's true, like 40% don't know their PCP. You know, they might've been assigned a PCP through Medicaid, but they don't know who they are. They, they don't have a good relationship with them or establish a relationship. Um, and so a lot of that was just extending the trust that the school has already built with a family to start working with them and you know, getting them into a, a medical home locally as well. In pre-COVID world, uh, we put a lot of focus there. Um, Post-COVID, gosh, <laughs> uh, you know, the world in general has changed so much. And um, I think a couple things come top of mind for us. Um, I think the biggest pivot was you know, as schools were shutting down and on campus, obviously they were still going virtual families and communities rely on school so much. Um, so uh, many of the families that we're working with have free and reduced lunch plans. And so really getting three meals a day through school, getting a lot of support services, especially for social emotional learning. And so we really tried to, to create, how can we actually help um, students that have gaps in care that may not have any other avenue and so we introduced something called Hazel at Home. So it's basically uh, trying to help students wherever they are. Um, and so for those that are in school, we obviously, that is kind of what we did pre-COVID and then also thinking about post-COVID as well. How can we extend that um, and still reach them and help them in many ways? Yeah, and I was going to get to Hazel at Home and, and how you adjusted and, and innovated based on that. Uh, maybe back to you, Josh. Can you give us a bit of a description of the size and scale of of Hazel before COVID, how many districts and people you had employed in, in clinical aspect, uh, as well as how many lives uh, maybe were covered by Hazel? And then, and then back to you, Jeannie, like how it changed after COVID, like where, where you are right now and where you see that fundraise taking you. 
the key metrics we look at at the very top level is, is how many school districts we have an official relationship with and then how many kids are under in those districts, uh, even if we're not yet rolled out to all those schools, especially now because a lot of schools aren't open. And so pre-COVID, like rough, if my memory serves me right, we, I think it probably had about 30 districts, probably about a quarter of a million kids in those districts. And then fast forward to now, the number is, I believe, over 60, and those districts represent about one and a half million kids. And so it's it's been this you know turbocharging. And then for us, it's been, and I think you know, the way I, I described it is the first years, of, you know, I've now been at Hazel three years. I think maybe I've had two school districts actually ever say no, that they didn't want to move forward. The, the most common thing pre-COVID was, you know, hey, this is a great idea. Um, love what, you know, this concept. And there's just so many other things. So let's talk in six months or a year. And I think what, what COVID is, yeah, unfortunately, for districts, it's, I think it's brought public health being more and more to the forefront. And schools have often had to think about these things, whether it's you know, norovirus you know, or flu or even things like lice, which comes out like, in elementary school. It happens all the time and my head itches every time I mention it. But like, there's always been at a small scale the need for this, but never has there been this sort of massive stakes um, to sort of solve these. And so it's it's, I think it's for a lot of districts that were already thinking about this, it's made it even more important to have partners that bring additional expertise on the healthcare side. I, I can definitely see that. And so to meet that doubling demand, Jeannie, I mean, you run clinical operations and people, can you talk a bit about how you've scaled those operations? Uh, how many physicians or nurse practitioners, PAs you employ and, and what they've had to do to adjust? Yeah, Shiv, it's a great question. Um, it was something that we were trying to tackle before COVID, and then uh, it just got exacerbated since we had to, to scale, but we had to actually scale not in person. <laughs> and so um, a lot of our training program uh, is actually really like based on in-person, doing live visits, and doing them together kind of side by side. And so we actually had to pivot and be a lot more innovative. And how do we actually bring people in um, and get them up to speed quickly? I think one of the things that makes us unique is that we really do try to understand the community and that connection. And so part of our interviewing process, it's uh, a lot more rigorous than some of our uh, providers have said <laughs> beforehand. Of, Gosh, you guys are really asking a lot of questions. And the key to success is, you know, are you really going to be able to establish that trust and connection? And it's hard to do it in person. And then you have to do it actually uh, through the video. Um, and so that's something that we absolutely look for in our hiring process, as well as our training process, as well as thinking about how do we get all those schools? You know, so those uh, that Josh had alluded to, we almost doubled um, the number of districts that we're supporting. And so how do we actually get everything out and have the initiators and, and folks that are at the schools feel comfortable as well. So it's been kind of a, a really fun process as we've tried to to meet the need. And Shiv, one thing I would add, just to give Jeannie and her team credit, because they've done a phenomenal job of this. So it's we are different than I think most of the telehealth providers that I've seen in that um, we're not, it's not creating sort of a network where folks jump in for a few hours and are in contract. We generally Generally, most people work for Hazel full-time, the providers, or at least dedicated at minimum kind of one or two days a week. And it is like in a very intensive training process. Because Jeannie talked about, it's not just HIPAA. They also have to learn the thing called FERPA, which is um, acronym crazy everywhere. Um, but the, and it's also this, this sort of real focus on, is this someone that knows how to operate in a school setting, to work with a very diverse set of families, um, 
be able to work across multiple languages, but also different levels of education. And I honestly, years ago, I, I thought this was going to be when we started, it was going to be the biggest barriers. Could we find providers that had the like the ethos of the people of providers you find in like a local community clinic, um, but are excited about doing using technology to go where kids are? Because um, in the beginning, a lot of the, I'll just you know. I'll, make a blanket statement that that in the beginning it was a lot of the folks that would express interest for people that wanted to do more telehealth for, for lifestyle reasons but there's nothing wrong with that but that wasn't the kind of providers that we wanted and and Jeannie and our, the team have just done a phenomenal job of finding people that have experience in community-based clinics that are incredibly diverse um, and represent the populations we serve and don't view it as you know, I would say I I, I don't know sometimes even like the word use telehealth because people view it as one way um, as much as this idea of using technology to go where kids are, whether it's at home or at school that we're trying to make it easier for them to access. But it's been a huge um, shift. Like my, you know, I, would, I will brag and say that if you had an appointment with any of our providers, you would say it's like one of the best providers you've ever had an experience, with, whether live or by video because of the great work that those guys have done. Yeah, it sounds like a very rigorous training process. I'd love to love to learn more about it. What's the scope? Like, how many um, clinicians do you currently employ? And you know, our audience are primarily current and future clinicians. What would your pitch be to them to join Hazel as you as you go from you know sixty school districts and one and a half million lives to six hundred school districts and fifteen million lives? The people that are really successful here at Hazel um, are the ones that really connect with our mission. We really do believe by providing healthcare, we can increase equity and um, across the board. And so. I would say for, for someone who really feels passionate about helping students across every platform and specifically all of our uh, providers have either a family practice or pediatric focus. And so also wanting to help kids specifically. You'll notice that I didn't say anything about telehealth in general, and I think that is on purpose. Um, and so we are hoping to, to revolutionize the way that pediatric care is delivered. And so um, wanting to, to be part of that innovative solution is uh, you should absolutely reach out to Hazel. So I'm curious, uh, you know, one question we like to ask our guests is, you know, right now we're obviously in the middle of a pandemic and it seems like the third wave is happening in the U.S. Hopefully at some point we'll be past this. Uh, what are some of the long-term changes you think that are going to outlast the pandemic, both for, you know, the healthcare system uh, as well as the uh, educational system? Because you play in both of those very uh, complicated, you know, industries. I'd love to hear you know, both of you, you can take take both questions each or or one of you can answer one and the other one, the other one, either way. Yeah, I would say uh, first and foremost, just the acceptance of telehealth in general. Um, even my, my own son, uh, they didn't offer uh, telehealth beforehand and that's absolutely something that they're doing now. Um, and so I think more of a, an acceptance of telehealth um, and, and seeing it more, much more pervasive, more broadly. You know, your question on what, Kind of trends would be going into the future. And I think especially in the education space, something that's been top of mind is behavioral health. Um, and so specifically, there's so many support systems that students get through school. Um, and it's absolutely incredible, the, the number of reference services and support that they're giving their students and having that disconnected. And so some are still doing amazing outreach and really trying to connect with their students. But I think just overall, a lot more focus on behavioral health in general and just the importance of kind of the social interactions that kind of happen throughout the hallways and through the playgrounds, I definitely think is, is going to be much more top of mind. 
you know, the historical view of primary care of having, you know, going into the doctor's office, but having very few visits, but for longer periods of time, uh, there's a lot of value to that. But I think part of even separate from Hazel, local doctors are starting to realize is like, gosh, it's, there's so much value to be able to have multiple touch points in places that's convenient for families. And I will say like some of the best case studies that we've had in Hazel are about the fact that we are where kids you know, are all the time. And so, you know, a child who you know, maybe had some undiagnosed or untreated asthma that, you know, we, it's not till the third or fourth visit, but because, because it's been so easy for them to access and for us to see them, you uncover something that you might not have otherwise had. Or, or similarly, if you're, you're working with a child on something, you're coaching them through something, you know, the ability to see them for maybe five or 10 minutes, you know, once every few weeks, as opposed to waiting for this big, long appointment, I think it's going to push a lot of us in the healthcare system to be much more focused on like the user experience. And, and it's not that doctors and everyone hasn't want to do that before. We just didn't have the technology or the reimbursement structure to, to support that. And I think, I think this is forcing a step change on that. And, and like Gene on the education side, my but it is pushing a lot of good innovation and things that people thought should happen in education for a while. But for education health, the thing that makes me most nervous is it is also exacerbating all the, the equity and access issues. And so there are you know, frightening stories on the education side we're hearing in schools of just kids that have just fallen off the radar because they can't find them and the kids don't have access to internet. And, and you know, I, I think we're going to have to, as a country, really spend a lot of time thinking about how do we, what do we do for that population that's going to even, even be worse off relative than they were before as we, as we get through this? Yeah, that's um, definitely some bright spots, but that's obviously a sobering, sobering thing we've, we've realized throughout the, the course of the pandemic, how it has hit uh, everything from uh, parents' employment opportunities to access to internet very differently, depending on what zip code you're in. I know we're coming up in time. So one of my last two questions for you both, and this is a question for, for each of you is, what advice would you give to our audience, which is primarily again, existing, but also future healthcare professionals about uh, meeting the moment, the COVID-19 moment, and, uh, and whether or not to, to continue pursuing their career in healthcare? I would say just gratitude. And we feel so much gratitude for everyone who's an essential worker. Our chief medical officer is still a pediatrics emergency room physician. So he is still um, in the ER. And so I, I have so much gratitude for everyone um, in the field, pursuing the field and, you know, thinking about what is next? We actually asked our CMO, you know, how long are we actually, do you think we're going to be talking about COVID? And he said, at least the next five years. In that sense of, you know, if I see a kid in the ER, it's still going to be top of mind for me. It's like this potential that someone potentially has COVID. And so I think for me, it's, you know, this is a long kind of steady race that we're all in and to not lose that hope um, that we will be together soon. And uh, anyway, I'm just left with a lot of gratitude. So. Thank you. First, I'd say there's only unfortunately more and more need for all these different healthcare positions, whether it's physicians, uh, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, RNs, and that there is so much need out there. So it is like professionally, it's a great place to go into. And I would say that like it is it is something that carries so much meaning. And I'm not a clinician myself. I get the great benefit though sometimes of hearing the stories, sometimes being told, sometimes directly from parents. And you just think about the amount of things that, that those healthcare providers and practitioners do every single day. I so much sit with how much it must feel like as a parent who doesn't know how to use a healthcare system, how stressful that must be at times. Um, 
and have, you know, I have the blessing of having friends who are doctors, I can ask them, but if you can help a parent feel like they can take better care of their children, I can't imagine a much more important calling in life than something like that. So uh, I also share gratitude and deep respect for all the work that they do. Those are both really powerful uh, responses to that question. And, and obviously you all are making it more possible for those uh, clinicians and providers to, to reach uh, the people they want to reach, even in the age of COVID. My last question is just, is there anything else you'd like to cover or, or let our audience know before we let you go? Uh, I, I, thank you for having us on here. And I think this other thing is I, I would love to see, and I think we're starting to see more and more focus of healthcare innovations um, focused on diverse populations. And, and, and I think there's a lot of great digital health companies. There's nothing bad with them, but so often we've seen things start with either a cash pay population or people with great insurance. And, you know, for us, it's been a really good, you know, it's been part of our mission, but also part of our kind of underlying strategy is we wanted to be there um, first and foremost for kids who have, don't have great insurance whose parents may not speak the language. And we're still gonna serve all kids, but I, it's been exciting for me to see other people and other organizations try to focus on that as their starting point. And I would love to see more healthcare companies do that. Yeah, Evan, I just want to say thank you so much for having us both on. And, you know, we've, one, totally enjoyed the experience, um, but also just appreciate how much uh, work and effort you guys are all putting in at Osmosis and uh, Raise the Line, a podcast uh, to help get information out and bring real stories out. So thank you so much. Well, with that, Jeannie and Josh, I mean, I really appreciate you taking the time and all you're doing to, as we say, raise the line and increase healthcare capacity. With that, I'm Shivivani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line since we're all in this together. Take care. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.